When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another podcast at SliceOffice.com brought to you by our friends at the Operating Engineers Local 139 and the Madison Teamsters Local 695. Well, John, has anything happened since we talked on Labor Day? Whoa, it's been that long? It um, has been It has been that long. That's, that's rare for us. We usually speak a little, I mean, you and I speak on the phone probably <laughs> most every day, but, but, you know, in some sort of podcast form. You know, slides. probably a lot of things that have happened, and as a result, it's kind of hard to keep track of them all. Um, but I would say, you tell me, you really get a chance that the world kind of went to hell. Well, uh, last night, President Biden was on with the folks, Scott Pelley from 60 Minutes, and uh, I thought this was an interesting question. Are the wars in Israel and Ukraine more than the United States can take on at the no, same time? We're the United States of America, for God's sake. The most powerful nation in the history, not in the world, in the history of the world. The history of the world. We can take care of both of these and still maintain our overall international defense. How do these wars in Israel and Ukraine relate to the safety of the American people? Overwhelmingly, they relate. For example, in Ukraine, one of my objectives was to prevent Putin, who has committed war crimes himself, who from being able to occupy an independent country that borders NATO allies and is on the Russian border. Imagine what happens now if he were able to succeed. Have you ever known a major war in Europe we didn't get sucked into? We don't want that to happen. We want to make sure those democracies are sustained. And Ukraine is critical in making sure that happens. All right, so John, uh, that clip demonstrates what the president is having to deal with right now. I feel good that he's there and not somebody that's inexperienced. What do you think? I think it's without a doubt. In fact, it, it's striking how many people have, uh, you know, how many historians and, and longtime observers, people kind of, I think, know their way around American politics in Washington, have, have paused to say exactly what you just said, that, boy, um, we're kind of lucky to have Biden there at this time. And it is striking that people around the world seem to be saying that as well. Not everybody. I mean, Biden's got his critics. Um, and I've, I've been critical of some aspects of the stuff he's done. But um, it's notable that, that, for instance, in the immediate aftermath of Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th, um, it was Biden who was a central player in rallying world leaders, key European leaders especially, um, to make a major statement about what had happened, right, and and to offer some parameters on, on going forward. Obviously, they don't guide everything by any means. They don't have that power. But um, it was important to have that moment of unity, and Biden was clearly at the center of that. In fact, there's been some writing on this that have suggested that, that Biden kind of was sort of on the phone, you know, better part of 18 hours a day trying to pull all that together. Very important. And then I think that, that um, Biden's recent actions over the last couple days uh, have been significant. And it's notable that, you know, you know, I follow, I've reported a long time in Israel and Palestine and follow the Israeli press very closely. And 
while I have some criticisms of how Biden has gone about certain aspects of, of things as regards Israel-Palestine, what is notable is that Haaretz, which is the, the kind of, for very sort of casual calculus, the New York Times of Israel, or at least the long-established um, major daily newspaper of Israel, has been using Biden as a, Biden's statements as a pressure point on Netanyahu to try and, and keep Netanyahu from, frankly, going off the rails. Now, I'm not saying that they've been successful and all that, but um, it's notable that when you, when you look at it, it's not just people in the United States that are seeing Biden as a very vital figure in all this. Um, people in conflict regions are, recognize it. And I, I just close off with one, one final notion. If you watch that 60 Minutes interview, um, you know, Biden wasn't as, as glib or quick as Gavin Newsom, right? Or as bombastic as, you know, many other political figures. He was, he was very calm, uh, very direct. Uh, and yet, uh, I'll ask you, didn't it seem as, as if you were looking at somebody who kind of had a mastery of, of the circumstance, right? <laughs> I, I not only think that, I think that he's so someone who, who in, in other areas as well, where he has learned from his own foreign policy mistakes. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. And, and look, he's, I mean, Biden, Biden is, I think. You're breaking, you're breaking up a little bit there, John. Sorry, I'm, I apologize. I think Biden's made mistakes. And one of the most encouraging things about him is that he's got a, a measure of humility. I think he understands that, um, you know, right now, for instance, he's in incredibly difficult territory. It, you know, we're talking about that, you know, the sense by, on both your part and my part that he's doing a good job uh, on a lot of stuff. And again, I, I can, we can dwell into some critiques. Um, I, I think he, I'd like to see him be even stronger on uh, counsel as regards uh, how Israel responds to the attack, especially as regards civilians in Gaza. I think the, the stronger Biden's message, the better, more important. And I think there are many people actually in Israel who are suggesting that as well. Um, but with that said, um, I, I think that, that that gets into the complexity for Biden. He, he recognizes that as president of the United States, whether you like it or not, he is in the role that Jimmy Carter described. And when Jimmy Carter, in his great book on, on peace in the Middle East, uh, argued that, you know, for the better part of 50 years now, the United States has been the, the essential uh, player from outside the region as regards peace processes or any effort to, to do reconciliation. And, and I think that Biden knows that in a way that somebody who wasn't around for the Camp David Accords, who wasn't around for all the, you know, small progress, failures, hopeful moments, deeply disappointing moments through the years, wouldn't fully understand. So I think that his experience uh, gives him a relative measure of calm uh, because he's been there before. And yet he has to operate in a world where only one party in the United States is functioning at any kind of at any kind of adult level. And you have a you know, have basically an insurrectionist, somebody who tried to turn over an election, who's as far as I'm concerned, just as guilty as Trump, uh, Jim Jordan. Uh, 
you know, being the at least temporary front runner <laughs> for speaker. <laughs> Although I don't think yeah. he's going to get the votes. That was very confident of you to suggest front runner status for anybody in the race for speaker. Um, and I can't believe you'd say something like that, fly about a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. Uh, yes, an all star wrestler. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, it's, it, I guess one of the things I've, I've been saying of late is I guess that Jim Jordan disproves the theory that, that, uh, the University of Wisconsin just turns out woke, you know, <laughs> folks who want to solve the problem. Well, who well. knew they'd be turning out Jefferson Davis? I had, it's a pretty remarkable thing. All right. So, and by the way, you know, there's this ridiculous notion that, Nikki Haley's an adult and that somehow she's the adult candidate running for the Republicans and she's the last hope for the mainstream. Listen to this foolish banter from her uh, with okay. Jake Tapper the other day. Oh, um, the House still doesn't have a speaker for the first time in American history. This is nearly two weeks after Kevin McCarthy was stripped of his leadership. They still can't even pass a resolution condemning the Hamas attacks. It's starting to look like there is not one House Republican who can get 200 and 17 votes. Uh, Republican Congressman Austin Scott said the chaos, quote, makes us look like a bunch of idiots, unquote. Is he right? Well, I'll tell you what's right is under the Biden administration, we've seen chaos um, with inflation and the fact that people are You can't blame that on Biden. You can't blame this on Biden. No, you can't. Well, you have to let me finish. Okay. We have seen chaos with inflation. We've seen chaos with the lack of transparency in education. We've seen chaos on the border. We've seen chaos with crime on the streets. And now we're seeing chaos around the world. What I'm saying is you can't fix Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. They need to get it together. They need to get in a room and figure out who this is going to be and come out unified. That's what Republicans need to do. This is not a good look. This is not good for our country. We saw what happened to Israel when they were distracted. America looks so distracted right now. When America's distracted, the world is less safe. We can't sit there and act like this is September 10th. We better get it together and remember what it felt like September 12th, because we've got a lot of threats around us and a lot of chaos around us, and we need some strength. We need some stability. And again, I'll say we need a new generational leader to write this shit. I love how she says America's distracted. I don't think Joe Biden's distracted. No, he's, he's, he's not, not distracted at all. No, but he's not paying much attention to the Republicans. He's letting them have their little little chaos over on the sidelines. But he is governing as best he can, and, and it seems to be functioning. It's not easy. Um, it would be much easier if you had a functional Congress. Um, but, you know, it's the one thing about Nikki Haley is if you let her go on, um, she explodes into word salad, right? You know what I mean? Where she's sort of like pulling pulling everything that she can get into to this kind of big jumble of language. And, and you saw what she did there. When she's asked about Republicans in Congress, um, she goes immediately to Biden, of course, and attacks him. Um, she's running for president. I could give her even a little space on that. But then... For that, God's sake, she says the man's going to die. Well, yeah, I know. But, but let me just finish here. <laughs> but then she, she then... I don't give her any so, slack. I would give her, let me just say this, though. This is the thing. I understand a candidate for president is going to be critical of the person that ran against. But if you're going to be the adult in the room, if you're even going to be the teenager in the room, right, um, at a certain point, what you have to say is, and, you know, my party's got a problem here, too, right? You know, 
I understand if you're in opposition, you criticize the other party. But but she she brought no critique, no realistic critique of the crisis in her own party to that discussion. And in my mind, that's virtually disqualifying for a candidate for the Republican nomination. If you can't if you can't see the problems within the Republican Party and say, I want to get the nomination of this party in order to get us to the next place, to get us to a better place, then why why pay attention to you, right? I mean, what, what is what is your value? And as a candidate, and I go back to something in the first debate between the Republican candidates, where um, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy said something that was really over the top on climate crisis, right? You know, it's basically like fossil fuels are the best thing going, blah, blah, blah. And um, and then Nikki Haley comes up and says, well, I think we have to be realistic about this. We have to have, a, you know, we have to be more thoughtful in our comments as you sort of critical of her rival. And she said, so, you know, I mean, we've got to get to the, the right place here. And then she went off on a big rant about blaming China, right? And and the thing is, again, you can criticize China, but where is the saying? And of course, we've got to do some things as well. She can never get beyond the the sort of hyper-partisanship. She's a hack. Talking point. Yeah. She's a hack. That's exactly <laughs> Tragically, he is indeed, and, 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 and this is the thing that's the, probably the sharpest and the cruelest criticism I'll offer here. She's not very good at being a hack. Ah, well, there are plenty of professional hacks. Here's someone who's, uh, I don't even know if you could use the word hack. He's beyond anything describable. Here's Donald Trump's first reaction, <laughs> speaking publicly Ooh. after Ooh. Hamas attacked Israel. I'll never forget that Bibi Netanyahu let us down. That was a very terrible thing. I will say that. And uh, so when I see uh, sometimes uh, the intelligence, you talk about the intelligence or you talk about some of the things that went wrong over the last week, uh, they've got to straighten it out because they're fighting potentially a very big force. They're fighting potentially Iran. And when they have people saying the wrong things, everything they say is being digested by these people because they're vicious and they're smart. And boy, are they vicious because nobody's ever seen the kind of sight that we've seen. Nobody's ever seen it. But they cannot play games. So we were disappointed by that, very disappointed. But we did the job ourselves, and it was absolute precision, magnificent, beautiful job. And then uh, Bibi tried to take credit for it. That wasn't good. That didn't make me feel too good, but that's all right. Everything is about him. I know. It, it's, and again, I apologize. I'm going to take something I said a moment ago back. I was accusing um, Nikki Haley of, of spewing out word salads. And, and I think, frankly, she's, she's not in the ballpark of Donald Trump. I mean, he's, he's the champion there. That was, that was sort of sputtering in every direction. Um, I think that the average person, if they were listening to that, would have virtually no idea what he's talking about, right? Um, and um, I'm not even sure that he knew what he was talking about there. But I'll tell you this. Um, criticizing Netanyahu is is fine. In fact, um, in, within Israel, I think the polling shows 86% of the people right now are uh, critical of Netanyahu. He is, he is not he's not having... Yes, but Donald Trump is criticizing him. Donald Trump is mad because Netanyahu congratulated Biden when Biden won. 
That's what so he's that mad about. Getting, that's the point I'm getting to, right? <laughs> Criticizing Netanyahu is fine. But the thing is, Trump is so disengaged, deeply, fundamentally disengaged from the issues facing the world that he can't even get to a rational point of, of criticizing somebody or, or complimenting him or whatever, whatever, wherever he wants to go. He, all he can do is remember his own grievances. And, you know, that's a really dangerous thing in a politician, right? Because, you know, think of Joe Biden as president of the United States. What if Joe Biden only thought about his own grievances, right? Only thought about people who, you know, weren't so nice to him or didn't work with him on, on something or opposed him on something. Um, he'd never get anything done. It would not be. It would not be functional. Well, we saw so, that for four years. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we weren't a functioning government. Uh, I thought, especially because there is a chasm, especially with a lot of young people that are progressives, uh, with the tensions in the Middle East between Israel oh. and uh, the Palestinians. I thought Pete Davidson from Saturday Night Live really hit a very positive note this weekend. This week, we saw the horrible images and stories from Israel and Gaza. And I know what you're thinking, who better to comment on it than Pete Davidson? <laughs> well, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, I am a good person to talk about it because when I was seven years old, uh, my dad was killed in a terrorist attack. So I know something about what that's like. Um, I saw so many terrible pictures this week of children suffering, uh, Israeli children and Palestinian children. And uh, it took me back to a really horrible, horrible place. And, um, you know, no one in this world deserves to suffer like that, you know, especially not kids, you know. Um, after my dad died, my mom tried uh, pretty much everything she could do to cheer me up. I remember one day when I was eight, uh, she got me what she thought was a Disney movie uh, but it was actually the Eddie Murphy stand-up special, Delirious. Uh, and we played it in the car on the way home, and, and when she heard the things Eddie Murphy was saying, uh, she tried to take it away. Um, but then she noticed something. Uh, for the first time in, in a long time, I, I was laughing again. Um, I don't understand it. Uh, I really don't, and I never will. But sometimes comedy is really the only way forward through tragedy. Um, you know, my heart is with everyone whose lives have been destroyed uh, this week. Um, but tonight, I'm going to do what I've always done in the face of tragedy, and that's try to be funny. Um, remember, I said try. <laughs> and live from New York, it's Saturday night. Now, there were some of my fellow, fellow baby boomers on Facebook last night not understanding him or, or what that was all about. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was reconciling, right? You know, this is, uh, he didn't make a great political statement there, uh, except, I guess, to some extent, recognizing um, the suffering among Jews, Muslims, and Christians in the region, among Israelis and Palestinians, and that, that he, he made note of. But at the heart of it was just this suggestion that, um, that you know, we've got this common humanity, right, that, that, we should all look at images of children dying and, and be horrified and, and want to stop it, right? Want to figure out how to, how to stop it. And also, frankly, that um, we can get into spirals of hopelessness about this and grief and, and, and anger and, and go so far 
into that that um, that we do then sort of stop stop having any measure of hope, right? You know, so that they really do feel it's intractable. And and the one thing I've been focused a lot on of late is I've been going back to interviews I did with Jimmy Carter and, and uh, books he's written and stuff like that. Not because Carter has all the solutions uh, and stuff like that, but but because the one thing that, that was his constant, that has been his constant, has been a hope for peace in the Middle East. More, 50 years now, working on it. And, and you say, well, why don't you give up, right? I mean, it's, it's, you, you run into so many brick walls. And yet, uh, for Carter, uh, in, in really dark and difficult moments, he has said, there's possibility, right? There's, you know, there is, there's some measure of light. And remember that the Camp David Accords slide did not come out of a good time in the Middle East. It wasn't like there had been a period where everybody was, was really starting to get along. The Camp David Accords came out of really, really incredibly difficult Bad times. times. Right. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break. John Nichols, Capital Times, and the Nation with us at SlyesOffice.com. Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit JeffsGuitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Fort Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers. All right, we're back at SlyesOffice.com. I want to talk about something that's got, everything's gotten buried because of the war this week. But I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on with the United Auto Workers. You're really plugged into this issue. Tell us where you think this strike is at. Well, I think that it is dangerous that it has uh, fallen out of a, out of attention because you know when when people are on strike, uh, we should be paying attention to it, right? Especially when it is in such a major industry as this. I'm not saying more attention uh, to the strike than to what's going on in the Middle East, or more attention even to the strike than what's going on in Congress. But I do think it's it's important when working class people are on picket lines that we we keep track of it. And, and one of the reasons it's important to keep track of it is because this is a dynamic strike. It is not one that, that uh, is just, you know, people went out, there on the picket lines, and nothing has changed. It's a growing strike. It's an expanding strike because uh, as the auto companies have failed um, at, at certain turns to, to make the uh, progress that is necessary, uh, the leader of the union and, and the leadership of the union, the UAW, has uh, brought more workers into the strike, right? It's expanded with each passing week. Uh, it's now much more national than it initially was, and it is, uh, it's starting to really be felt within the auto industry in a much deeper way, and, and there is a chance it will expand further. At the same time, it is important to recognize there has been massive progress in these negotiations, not to a settlement because the UAW is frankly holding out for a real 
contract for something that, that, that moves the industry forward. But the decision of at least one of the companies, and I think in, in reality it's going to be several of the companies, uh, to agree to have their battery production for electric vehicles done union, right? And to, to you know, put that production in union plants, uh, in, in presumably historically uh, industrialized manufacturing communities, that's huge. That's, that's one of the biggest issues in this. People talk all the time about the financial side of it. They talk about the benefits. That's all legitimate and important to pay attention to. But at the heart of this thing is a fight over the future of the industry, and General Motors uh, has given you know, some very good signals. I mean, the, the union and the company suggested that they're making real progress on this question of, of whether the work of the future will be done uh, by union workers. Uh, again, I would hope in traditional manufacturing communities, places that, that have been so often abandoned. So there's, there's progress here. Um, and also, I have to tell you, Sean Fain is, and that guy, he's amazing. He is an absolute stalwart who's basically doing a, a daily uh, seminar on how to talk about uh, class, how to talk about economics in America. So rather than just protecting the se- the senior union members and kind of overseeing the destruction and elimination of union jobs in America, he had a vision for the future. That's right. This is what this is all about. I mean, look, uh, the vision for the future is integrated with the reality of the present. And so as a result, yeah, workers who have sacrificed over the, now the better part of 15 years, right, going back to the, the Great Recession, they need to be made whole. And so you do need significant uh, economic improvements, wage increases. Um, but then you also have to recognize that this industry is changing. That's why they put forward the proposal for the 32-hour week. They weren't asking to work less. Right. Uh, what they know is because with automation, AI, technological changes, the rise of the electric vehicle, that people are going to actually people in those plants are going to be working harder in many ways, more efficiently. They're going to be producing more vehicles. And they're just saying that when you're doing that, um, you ought to have pay levels that you've had currently, but you can do it in, f- in fewer hours. So you're not burned out. It's, I mean, go on about it for a long time, but this is something Europeans have understood for quite a while now. Uh, European industries have been moving toward a 32-hour week for a long time. I'm not sure the auto workers are going to get that. That's a, that's a big leap, but it is an important part of looking at the future of the industry. And I would argue equally important and much less uh, noted has been this fight over uh, electric vehicles and how they are produced and where they are produced and who produces them. And... Uh, the fact of the matter is, the if, if you had non-visionary UAW leadership, they would say, oh, we just want a bunch of money, right? And they'd, they'd be satisfied with that. Um, if that was all they asked for, the companies would give it to them because the companies know the industry is transitioning radically and rapidly. And so what this union is asking for is fair treatment of younger workers, getting rid of the multi-tiered pay scales and things of that nature, Um for a, a better way of organizing the workplace, i.e. the 32-hour week, things of that nature, and for guarantees as regards the future of the industry. And that's how you, you start to look at these electric uh, vehicle issues. Well, if, it, if they didn't have the automaker's attention before, uh, the Louisville F-150 yeah. truck plant closing down, that's certainly going to get people's attention. 
Yeah, that was it. That yeah. is that is yeah. that is the epicenter of profit for Ford. It is exactly. And you know, look, um taking the the Jeep workers in uh um Toledo out it was a big deal for Stellantis, right? And and so what you what you need to understand is they just need that, to go back to Chrysler. What's this Stellantis stuff? Yeah, Come yeah, on. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I, even I I always when I write it I put the, you know, which includes Chrysler and stuff. That's like Meta. But, although, Come on, me, it's Facebook. Meta. Come on. For me, though, why? Why? I don't even accept Chrysler. I'm still an American Motors. You know? <laughs> uh, well, you know what's kind of funny with this strike going on? 20 years ago, all the Republican candidates would have been bashing the union. Yep. But they're a little more cautious about that because they're. Their base is a little different than it used to be, but listen yeah, to I, listen to Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Ronald Reagan gave us a Ronald Reagan gave us a great example when federal employees decided they were going to strike. He said, "You strike, you're fired." Simple concept to me. To the extent that we could use that once again, absolutely. The second thing we I would do though is very important. This is a probably not a well-known fact. The first thing, part of the challenge that we have today with President Biden is, and I don't mean this to be disingenuous, I mean this to be sincere, I'm not sure if the words are bought and paid for, but it certainly he has been uh, leased by the, by the unions. And I say that because the first bill he passed, y'all remember the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package? Yeah. That only had 1% for COVID vaccines? Mm -hmm. It had $86 billion, I believe for union pensions because they keep making these deals. Your thoughts? Thanks, Tim Scott. By the way, um, uh, by the way, I understand he lives in a very nice house. He must. Um, thanks a lot, I, and, and good luck on your future in South Carolina um, because if you try to take that argument on the road as a Republican nominee for president, you would lose. Period. Um, that is an argument that is antithetical to where the American people are today. Remember, um, polling shows that 66, 67% of Americans um, side with unions as opposed to corporations. I mean, the numbers are through the roof. People are far more sympathetic to unions. And the interesting thing is, as regards to language on strikes, um, the, uh, when you got in that Gallup poll that showed 66, 67% of Americans are supportive of unions, when he asked about the UAW strike, right, if you, and this was earlier when it was about to happen, that if UAW strikes, which side are you on? 75% of people back the UAW. And so people in America actually like strikes even more than they like unions. And so to go out there and to say, this is Tim Scott's argument, right? Understand his argument. Um, he wants to fire people who collectively bargain, and when they get to a point where they need to stand up and show some strength, go out on the picket line. He wants to fire them for seeking fair pay, fair wages, future for their industry. And, and as a, you know, like kind of like capper for that, he also wants to, um, you know, like do harm to people who have pension guarantees, right, who worked their life, got a guarantee of a pension, and they were screwed over by, you know, hedge fund managers and the kind of people who back folks like Tim Scott for the U.S. Senate. Um, and so the bottom line is, here's a guy who's anti-worker and anti-retiree. 
How far are you going to get in politics with that? And the union has actually filed a complaint against him because he's talking about firing GM workers. You know, uh, I don't know if he understands the distinction between government employees and people working in the private sector. But the union actually has filed, a, I don't know, what, what you would call a complaint against him. Yeah, unfair labor practices. Right. But yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm not, I haven't read the paperwork, but I can tell you, yeah, the union. What, what happened is this is Sean Payne, and it's why he's such a significant union leader. When somebody says something as dumb and as damaging as what, you know, Tim Scott has said, and frankly what Nikki Haley has said and what a number of these other candidates have said, um, the UAW pushes back, right? They don't just accept it or look away. Um, they're frankly, I'll tell you, the UAW is a lot smarter than a lot of Democrats. Because a lot of Democrats, when they get attacked or when they get criticized, they say, oh, well, I'll just, I won't pay attention to it, right? Um, the UAW's not playing that game. When Trump came in and appeared at a non-union plant to, you know, supposedly rally auto workers, they called him out for it. When Tim Scott says this, this lunacy, they called him out for it. And they have done it again and again. And frankly, I think that's that's what we need a little more of because we've allowed political figures to beat up on unions for too long. And Sly, you and I know that very well from here in Wisconsin. Scott Walker. <laughs> uh, How's his career going right now? Real well. Um, before we go, you know, Steve Bannon had a grand plan of helping RFK Jr. Uh, damaged Joe Biden in a Democratic primary. Yeah, yeah. Be careful what you wish for in politics, because sometimes it can boomerang. And that oh, yeah. is what's happening to the Republicans right now. JF, uh, RFK Jr. Uh, somehow got a little cult following among some Republicans, and now he's running as an independent. He sure is. And notably... Um, Dennis Kucinich, who was his campaign manager, has exited the campaign. Well, that, right? I don't know what he was thinking in the first place, but... I I understand what you're saying, and I understand that, but you recognize that that uh, I think that's a significant thing. Uh, you know, the when Kucinich was with him, Kucinich was, is certainly somebody who's pushed the limits of the Democratic Party, but always recognize you stay in it, right? You know? Um, as Kennedy goes out of the party... Look, you try and identify for me anybody tied to the Democratic Party who's going with him, right? And you're going to have a very hard time finding that. I mean, he is he's exiting um, without a constituency within the party that he, he sought to lead. Um, and as a result, the, the people he's got with him now is, I mean, it's a small circle of people who have specific grievances, you know, people who are anti-vaxxers or who you know, may bind some other conspiracy theory. But then it's it's also, um, you know, as you say, it. Uh, if you look at the folks, interviews with the folks who were at his announcement, there were folks who said, oh, I voted for Trump last time, but I'm voting for him this time. That is a problem for the Republicans. Now, Democrats have some problems with, you know, potential third parties as well. You yeah, know, before, we, before we go, let me ask you about the Cornell West situation. Now, he's not running under the Green Party label now? Yeah, now he's running as an independent, just like Bobby Kennedy. Okay. And, and I think I would say that that's kind of good news for both major parties, right, that Kennedy and West are going as independents, because I know this from covering politics. Um, you're much smarter to attach to a party, even if it is difficult. Now, RFK had gone with the Libertarians and, and uh, West with the Greens. 
because they at least have ballot lines. And you don't have to spend a year trying to get on the ballot and, and, and tens of millions of dollars and all the frustrations that go with it. And so uh, I think that, that a lot of people will talk about Kennedy and Cornell West. They're very different people, by the way. Cornell West, um, I'm much more honorable, in my view, and somebody I've, I've had a great deal of I don't think he's acting honorably right now. Yeah, but, but by, be that as it may, the fact is that, that he's, he's made a political move that I think makes it very hard to see how he remains a factor in 2024. Because getting on the ballot um, in this in this circumstance in this cycle, uh, you have to have a massive number of people who are committed to you and ready to go do the work. And um, and I'm just I, I find that I find it hard to imagine that that's going to happen. Well, um, you, even if they attempt, uh, you can bet Ben Wickler <laughs> and maybe even Brian Shimming. You know the parties at each state yeah, level. Maybe they'll agree to when, when those when those ballot signatures show up at the elections board, they're going to be ready to just blow one name right after another off those lists. Yeah, and, and you know, look, I'm not a fan of that. I think that you know, if you get your signatures, yeah, and, and I'm just telling you the reality of the situation. Well, I just think. I think even getting to that point, Sly, and I'll tell you, Wisconsin's easy to get on the ballot compared to most places. Um, there's a lot of places where it's a it's an incredible lift, and and I, I I find it almost unimaginable that both of these candidates have chosen to go the independent route because it is so much harder. John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation. Thanks for coming to Sly's office. Pleasure to be with you, brother. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye-bye.